I think I might be on my, no, I've got the right notes here. But uh, yeah, we're going to be looking at uh, temptation. Another, like I said, I was, we're kind of on this, you know, John Owen dealing with sin section. And so we're going to briefly look at temptation, and then we're going to just highlight a couple things in there, indwelling sin. So these two, and then the mortification of sin, which I gave out last week, really kind of are, he's, he's addressing sin, temptation in believers and how you kill it. Okay? Like they're really, you kind of have to have them all together. Um, this one, temptation, he wrote, like I said, when he was at Christ Church College in Oxford. This one, indwelling sin, is kind of interesting. He wrote later on in life when he was, you know, after um, Charles II comes back to the throne, and he was just pastoring a small church. Um, and it's kind of interesting because he's a lot more pastoral in this one, like just kind of, you know, in, in helping matters of conscience. It's just kind of neat to see his pastoral heart come through. So we'll look at those two. Um, and that's what we'll do today. And then also, I kind of wanted to end on um, sanctification. I'm just realizing I left my notes over in the other room. Um, they're on my desk. They're two pages. I might not even get to it, so it might not be that big of a deal. But they're, I think they're folded up. It'll say, like, the Reformed model of sanctification, the Pilgrim Christian, something like that. It might actually be in a book. If someone wants to go find them, that would be great, Kenyon. They're on my desk somewhere. Has, has a lot of purple pen on it. Who knows? Uh, you know, it's not too bad. I can, I can live with it, you know. This is my, uh, you know, thorn in the flesh, you know, that Paul had. If this is all I have to deal with, I'm doing pretty well. So, all right, we've gone over this. You know what we're doing. We've talked about historically who are the Puritans. Now we're kind of focusing on what can they contribute like I said, we're looking at the life and works of John Owen, mainly communion with God, mortification of sin, his most, probably his most two well-known books. Um, and then this morning, like I said, temptation and indwelling sin, probably some of the clothes. I mean, he, is, he's, he wrote so much. Um, the glory of Christ is really good, really well-known. The Holy Spirit is really good, really well-known. Um, there's just tons of works that he did that are just excellent. But the mortification of sin, as we went over um, last week, really focused on just that one verse in Romans. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, and this is where he focuses, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's where he gets mortification, to mortify something, to kill it, to kill the deeds of the body, you will live. One of the reasons why we have to do this he says is that the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the works of the flesh. Um, you know, if this is, if you want to have a, you know, pleasant conscience where you're not just struggling in your spiritual life all the time, it really depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Let me see. Oh, you did good. Good job. Thank you, Kenyon. Um, we'll see if we even get to it. Um, and so I, I think that's very important for us to look at. Talk about a lot of things. Again, review what is the mortification of sin and habitual weakening of it. Uh, constant fighting and contending against sin. And well, what does that look like? Well, we need to recognize, know the enemy. Um, and he really focuses on that really with temptation and indwelling sin. Um, is he's really then focusing back on these three things, knowing the enemy, recognizing it, its strategies, its methods, how does it work, um, and then kind of not so much this third one, but more so the, um, 
those middle two. And then a degree of success in the battle. You're not successfully mortifying uh, the deeds of the flesh if you're just constantly losing the battle, um, is his point, is that there's actually some triumph over, over sin. And so he ends um, really kind of just with this one point. How do you do this? What do you do practically? And I love his point here. There's no mysticism. There's no weird stuff. There's no strategy, big, you know, you know, do these 23 different things and then you'll mortify sin. It just starts here. Set faith at work. Exercise your faith. The faith that the Lord has given you, that he's given to believers, use it. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. He's saying you fight against sin with the gospel. That's what you do is you just continually go back to who Christ is, what he's done for us, and you live in this, and you will die a conqueror. Yea, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. And with lust there, he's not just talking about, you know, we think of you know, sexual sin, sensuality, something like that. Lust, especially in the New Testament, is just another, you know, it's a Greek word, epithumia, any type of desire. It's not necessarily intrinsic sinfully, sinful desire either. Sometimes in context, it's actually not. Um, but any type of sinful desire, right? Anger, pride, uh, you know, sloth, laziness, gluttony, anything like that. Um, this is how you fight against those sins. And so he says, consider the mercifulness of Christ. Consider the faithfulness of Christ. Expect the power to triumph over your sin. Um, that's a huge part of it as well, is actually going into the conflict believing that you will have triumph over it. There's much more to be said there on to temptation. Of temptation, uh, the title here in the abridged one is Temptation Resisted and Repulsed. And again, in typical Puritan fashion, we just focus on one verse, right? It's almost like find the shortest verse you can find, and then we'll see how much we can say about it, right? It's like one guy said about Owen, he's like, Owen never um, wrote a sentence with 10 words if you could write that sentence with 100 words. Um, and it's, that's kind of typical Puritanism. It's like, why say it in 10 words when I can use 200? Um, but he focuses in here on Matthew 26, 41, um, right before Jesus um, is crucified, talking to his disciples. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And there's three main things uh, that he draws out from this verse. And these are some of those uh, blanks you have on your notes. The evil cautioned against temptation. That is the evil that he is warning us against. Temptation. You have number two, the means of its prevalency. Uh, how does it gain a foothold? How does it uh, gain its power, the means of its prevalency? Our entering into it. It's a real interesting verse that he goes into. What does it mean to enter into temptation? And then number three, uh, the way of preventing it, watch and pray. Pay no attention. David calls it the weeping and gnashing of teeth in there, which I just thought was hilarious. Um, yeah, it's, that is what it is, kind of. Uh, the way of preventing it, watch and pray. Um, he has an excellent section on point number three here on what, what does it mean to watch and pray. He talks about how sin and temptation are very humbling. I think we know this experientially. Uh, sin and temptation is very humbling. He says, even the best of saints being left to themselves will quickly be less than men, to be nothing. All our strength is weakness and all our wisdom is folly. 
He's talking about how if we are left on our own, if we do not have the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we can't do this, right? And we will quickly realize that the strongholds that we've built up to guard against temptation really will do nothing um, unless the Lord empowers it. And so sin and temptation is really humbling. He writes about how uh, God allows trials, um, oftentimes temptations, into our lives. God himself tempts no one. James 1 is very clear in that. Um, But he allows temptation for two reasons. He says to show man what is in him, to show us what we have in us. And then number two, to show himself, to show God unto man. Uh, Why does he allow these things? To reveal who we are and also to reveal who God is. To reveal our own sinful fallenness and our need for God's grace and the God who supplies our every need and supplies that grace. He writes, A man shall see that it is God alone who keeps from all sin. Until we are tempted, we think we live on our own strength. I think we know that, right? It's, you know, it's when, you know, there's no temptation, nothing's wrong, everything's great. We're like, man, I am so sanctified. I'm just cruising. And then you don't realize, man, you're cruising for a bruising, right? Uh, temptation comes and you're in trouble. So he defines, what is temptation? What are we talking about here? Very broad. Again, this is, you know, a lot of words here. This is that big sentence, which maybe you could have said simpler, but I like it because I'll just read it. Temptation then in general, okay, he's trying to get the biggest picture of temptation. How do we define it? In general, is anything, any state, any way, any condition that upon any account, whatever, like just kind of like, oh wow, okay. Anything on any account, whatever, has a force or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience which God requires of him into any sin in any degree, whatever. There's a lot of any, whatever, any. It's like, man, that is is a lot. What is he saying there? Um, Temptation is anything that has a force to draw a regenerate believer from his obedience to God. See how he talks about that, right? To draw the mind and the heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires of him, right? Now that we are saved, God requires that we do obey him, right? Well, temptation is anything that draws us from that, is what he's saying. It can be anything, state, way, condition, in any degree, whatever. And it has a, this is important too, he gets into this in Indwelling Sin, um, but it has a force. It actually has a power. It's not neutral in and of itself that sin, temptation, is actually active, whether it's internal, our old man, uh, the old flesh, or external, right? Satan and his powers are, there is a force there. It's not just a neutral Uh, neutral thing. Um, Again, remember the context here. He's writing about the mortification of sin around the same time. He's seeking to give us weapons to fight against sin. He focuses on this verse. What does it mean to enter into temptation? To enter into temptation. A couple things that it's not. To enter into temptation is not to be merely tempted. Okay, It's not to be just simply tempted. I hate to break it to you. You will be tempted the rest of your life. Okay, Temptation will be present. The world will tempt, the flesh, your own flesh will tempt, and the devil will tempt. Those are typically the three things. I mean, it's a pretty broad way of talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil. That will be tempting you. So that's not what it means uh, to enter into temptation. It's not merely to just be tempted. It does not refer to, um, you know, the ordinary work of Satan and our own lust. It seems to be something specific here uh, that Jesus is talking about. It's not 
being conquered by temptation such that we sin, a person can enter into temptation and yet not sin, what does it mean? I would say, as Owen says, entering into temptation means to be tempted such that the believer is entangled or ensnared by the desires of sin. It's to be tangled or ensnared such that the desires of sin have you in a way that you're, you're stuck. That is what it means to enter into temptation. He has a real clever turn um, that I think maybe gets at a little more. When we suffer a temptation to enter us, then we enter in temptation. When we suffer a temptation, when we allow one to enter into us, when we're considering in our mind, huh, what about that? What if I do that? Okay? Not necessarily. Um, there is a difference here between temptation and sinful desire, right? Like if you look on someone with lust, if you look on someone with anger, right? Like if I'm just angry at Paxton so much, I don't know what he did to me, but I'm just like, ugh, seething at him. But he doesn't know. It's all in my mind. Is that sin? That's not your question. Yes, right? James makes that very clear. Sinful desire. If you're desiring to do something sinful, like punch David in the face because I just hate his guts for some reason, but I don't actually do it. That's sin, correct? Right? Jesus makes that very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So he's not talking about that. What he's talking about is entering into temptation when we actually begin to think that sin might be a viable course of option. Does that make sense, the difference between the two? Not necessarily desiring it, but when we start to consider it as a possible course um, uh, for us to walk down. He kind of talks about this here, kind of some, some longer quotes that I think we'll maybe unpack it a little more. While it, he's talking about temptation, knocks at the door, we are at liberty. But when any temptation comes in and parlays with the heart, it reasons with the mind, it entices and allures the affections, right? He's talking about mind, heart, will, all those things we've talked about. Be it a long or a short time, does it thus insensibly and imperceptibly, we don't even recognize it, or do the soul take notice of it, whether it's something you don't even recognize is happening or you do, that is when we enter into temptation. When a sin option begins to be considered in our minds. Here it's how do we get to a place like this? He says, by long solicitations or petitioning, considering, um, by long considerations with sin and temptation. Talks about how if we're not daily uh, heightening our hatred of sin, we'll get to this point where temptation and sin becomes familiar, right? And eh, we're okay with it, right? Um, and, and this is true, right? Sins that you, generally speaking, historically have struggled with are typically the ones that continue to come back up and it's not as big of a deal um, unless we're daily fighting that fight. And he writes about this. If this indignation, this hatred against temptation be not daily heightened, but the soul by conversing with the evil begins to grow, as it were, familiar with it, not to be startled as formerly, but rather inclines to cry. I like this. Is it not a little one? I think that's very common how we respond to sin, right? It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a temptation. Then... The temptation is coming towards its high noon. Lust has then enticed and entangled, and it is ready to conceive. He's talking about James 1.15. Very clearly lays out uh, sin there. So what do we do? How do we fight this battle against entering into sin? What Jesus prescribes in Matthew 26.41, which I think you guys have on your notes there at the bottom. Watch and pray. 
Watch and pray. Those two things are how you fight against temptation. Watch. You need to watch. You need to keep a clear, abiding sense and apprehension of the great evil that temptation will lead to if it is followed. Watch. Know the enemy. He says, always bear in mind the great danger that it is for any soul to enter into temptation. Here's a really, really good quote here that's convicting. Let no man then pretend to fear sin that does not fear temptation to it. Let me read that again. Let no man pretend to fear sin that does not fear temptation to it. If you don't fear temptation, you don't actually fear sin. He goes on to say they are too nearly allied to be separated. They're too close, temptation and sin. Satan has put them so together that it is very hard for any man to put them aside, to deal with just one or the other. It's oftentimes we're tempted and we sin. And we sin because we're tempted, right? So you fear sin by fearing temptation. He ends that paragraph that I just said. He hates not the fruit who delights in the root. Okay? He hates not the fruit, sin, who delights in the root, temptation. Sin is not going to feel great or serious to a person. This is what he's saying, who thinks temptation a light or trivial thing. So we need to watch. And then point two, we need to pray. Watch and pray. There's not a thing in our own power to keep and preserve ourselves from sin. Um, I'm always struck by um, Luke 22. I have the verses here. Luke 22, 31 to 32. This is right before uh, Jesus warns Peter that he's going to deny him three times. Listen to what Jesus says. Simon, Simon, Peter, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That is terrifying. Isn't that terrifying? Like, whoa, like... Satan has demanded to have you, but it's also, you know, Satan can only have him if God allows it, right? So that is providentially uh, comforting, but also that is terrifying that Satan demanded to have him. That he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32, here's the comfort. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, right? Um, And that's also, in a weird way, comforting because it certainly seems right after that Peter's faith does fail, right? He denies him three times, but he's restored. So I think that's one evidence of that true believers will fall. They will be, you know, they'll see temptation just like Peter. It was, oh man, if I deny him, I'll get out of this situation. He denies his Savior three times and the Lord still restores him. It's not that Peter lost his salvation or anything like that. Um, But I, I think the principle is that apart from Christ and his Holy Spirit intervening, uh, our faith would fail, right? So he says, Satan demanded to have you, may sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Implication is that if Jesus doesn't pray for his people, their faith does fail. Um, And that's where John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer is so encouraging. Um, Love that passage there. We must pray to the Lord. We cannot do this by ourselves, by the Holy Spirit. We pray that he would give us the strength to fight sin and temptation. And I would argue this is how, you know, sometimes, you know, it's like, well, what do we mean? Like, take up the shield of faith, you know, and, you know, you know, take up the sword of the spirit. Um, David last night, he had a, I'd never heard this. And I was like, that's so good. It's like any time, and I think Pastor Mike said this, you know, anytime you're struggling with sin, temptation, just grab your Bible and start reading. Like, that's how you take up. The, the shield of faith is not some weird mystical thing. You're fighting against sin, temptation. Oh, I don't know what to do. Like, Grab your Bible. Just start reading. Pray. Something along those lines. That's how you exercise and have faith. 
One last note on temptation. I thought this was very good and very helpful. One of my favorite Owen quotes. Talking about sin and temptation and the, the schemes of the devil, I wish I would have, this is aside, of the books I bought, one other book that you probably really need to get, I haven't read it completely, just parts of it, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. It's one of the most well-known Puritan books as well. You can get the Puritan paperbacks. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and it's much more of this fighting against sin. Owen talks about this, how the devil tempts, and I was like, wow, that's true. I shall only add that the sin that he tempts you to, to the law, okay? What he's saying here is this. In temptation, what Satan will do is say, don't do this because God's word clearly says you shouldn't, okay? We get that. I shouldn't lash out in anger because the Lord says I shouldn't. I, that, that's, that's committing murder in my heart, okay? I shouldn't do that, okay? Satan is going to tempt you to the law. It's actually not the thing he aims at. He's not aiming to get at, you know, the law. His design lies against your interest in the gospel. What he's saying here is Satan actually is saying, hey, you know, consider this. You don't want to do it. He's seeking to upset your assurance. He's seeking to upset your standing in the gospel. He would make sin but a bridge to get over to a better ground, to assault you as to your interest in Christ. He who perhaps will say today, you may venture on sin because you have an interest in Christ, right? Hey, it's okay to sin because you're a Christian. Christ has paid for your sins. Everything's okay. So if you just do this, it's not really that big of a deal. That's how sin works, is it not? He works that way such that he will tell you tomorrow to the purpose of why he tempted you like that, that you have none. You have no interest in the gospel because of what you've done. Does that make sense? I was like, oh, man, that's true. That is how sin works. Does that make sense? He's going to tempt us. Hey, if you do this, yeah, sure, it's against God's law, but it's okay. You don't have to do it because you have a standing in Christ. He gets you to do that such that you begin to think you now have no standing in Christ and in the gospel. It's the remedy we need to be against on Satan's devices. Yes? Yeah, the reprobate in the cage. Yeah. Yeah. I'm too bad. I can't get out of the cage. Yeah. And he like hates himself too much. It's just like that. Yeah. That is one of the most so that is the most sobering aspect of Pilgrim's Progress. We're going to talk about that in the spring. Don't talk about that now. We'll we'll talk about that later on. But yes. I I'm very excited for Pilgrim's Progress. Um it's so good. Um and I would just say this. I don't know if I was going to talk about, I was hoping to talk about, you know, have you guys heard about the influencers stuff, the, inf, the influencer statement and the conference they're having? Yeah. Um, huh? Signed it. Easton signed it. Yeah, he's, he's full on board. Um, you know, someone mentioned, you know, well, it's, you know, it's an allegory. The main book they use is an allegory, and Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. Um, and I was like, uh, yeah, Pilgrim's Progress is filled with scripture absolutely filled, which the influencers is just not um, their main book, The Journey to the Inner Chamber of the Soul. River. If your book title is that, Red Flag should be going off, by the way. Um, journey to the Inner, isn't that Journey to the Inner Chamber, right? It's very, whoa, um, that's not good. Um, and uh, so anyways, that was just 
totally aside, but Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan is very, very concerned, and he even talks about this, you know, that in allegory, don't take everything, don't take my allegory that everything stands for this and this for that, um, but we can learn biblical truth through it, and that's why he even puts in the references, like, oh, I'm referencing this scripture, Um, but also, I would just say, Bunyan knows our Bibles a lot better than we do, and so there's oftentimes he's quoting scripture, and we don't even know it, and then you're like, oh, that is a quote from that random obscure verse in Isaiah 9, 2. You know, it's just like, I've never known. But it's like, they just, it amazes me that the Puritans know, they do this all the time. Owen will go back and find some random reference in like 1 Kings 8. It's like, what in the world? It's like, they didn't have Bible software. They had nothing. Like, they just read their Bibles and knew it. Um, just convicting in that regard. So, anyways, that's all temptation. Let's get on to uh, indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. Again, one verse, Romans 7, verse 21. So I find it a law, excuse me, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He takes Romans 7 as uh, the condition of a believer, um, not Paul talking about when he was unsaved or an unbeliever. This is the experience of a regenerate believer, um, which I would agree with him. It's kind of one of those things like Owen said it. That settles it. Um, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And again, he notices kind of these four components of this verse. And this is what he uh, spills ink talking about. The power and efficacy of indwelling sin. Paul calls it a law. This isn't just a uh, vague notion that actually indwelling sin in a believer is powerful, and it actually has uh, an efficacy to it. He calls it a law. Point two, the way of discovering this law. Paul says, I find. Paul found it. I think this is a key point, regardless of whether you take Romans 7 as talking about a believer or not. Galatians 5, very clearly, is talking about the same thing. Um, and he talks about it here. There's, it's one thing to know or believe that it's a law, but Paul, I think, in Romans 7 is talking about experientially he found it. In his own walk and daily obedience to the Lord, we know experientially that indwelling sin exists. Does that make sense? So he's saying it's one thing to know, sure, theoretically this is true, but experientially uh, we discover this law of sin. The frame of his soul, this is a believer who wants to do right, right? I find a law within me, that when I want to do right, this is a a believer. Point four, the Satan activity of indwelling sin. Evil lies close at hand. When I want to do right, and we understand this, oftentimes when we're wanting to obey, we're wanting to please the Lord, we're wanting to do what's right, that's oftentimes when the law of indwelling sin rises up, right? Um, When we are seeking to obey. And so those are those four kind of components that he uh, writes about. This is actually the longest one of these three works on sin we've talked about. Um, I, I'm not going to be able to spend that much time on it. Uh, he takes um, on this indwelling sin is effectually operative and rebelling and inclining to evil when the will of doing good is in particular manner active and inclining unto obedience. That's just that last point there. It's when we seek to obey um, that oftentimes sin rises up. Um, he writes how this is perpetual. This is ongoing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. By law, he's just saying that um, 
This is a principle indwelling sin that is not going to be rooted out until we die. Okay, um, he's writing, you know, kind of also against. Not necessarily at this time is higher life theology coming, but he's he's very clearly saying there's no sinless perfectionism that we can attain in this life. He's saying when I find it to be a law that this indwelling sin is a principle, maybe that's a better word um, to use, that's going to abide in believers. I find it to be a law within me, this power of indwelling sin, a principle of the old nature, the old man that remains within the believer. Does that make sense? Kind of, mm-hmm. kind of like death. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully when we die... This law goes away, whereas I think there, I don't know if there, I would assume there'd be gravity in the new heavens and the new earth, but, but yeah, I, if, if law is catching up, I would just say principle, you know, the way of discovering this principle, this continuing abiding uh, influence maybe is a better one, um, something like that. So. Principle, influence. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, if I looked at the Greek word and see what it is, but it might, it might just be nomos for law. I don't know. But um, whatever it is, principle is another good one. Um, and that's what he's getting at. There's a lot. He says, like I said, this is the longest one. I just wanted to focus on one thing where he talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And this kind of gets into uh, temptation. Uh, but he spends this whole chapter talking about the deceitfulness of sin, which is really good uh, for me. Um, he talks about how the deceitfulness of sin its power to lie to us is actually one of the uh, continuing evidences that it actually still has power. He talks about this by looking at Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, here's the key point, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a very powerful principle there in thinking about, you know, what is one of your responsibilities as a church member? You need to be exhorting one another every day, as long as it's called today. So like today is today, so you should exhort one another to do this. To watch out about the deceitfulness of sin, that none of you may be hardened. That the lying nature of sin actually has a hardening effect on our hearts where we can deceive ourselves. And he goes all the way back. This was powerful for me. Sin in its very nature is deceitful. Think of the Garden of Eden, right? Satan, what, deceives Eve. He presents things not as they actually are. If you do this, if you take of this fruit, it will actually lead to these good things. That is not true, right? It did not lead to those things. It brought about death, okay? Sin is deceitful. It seeks to confuse our minds. Eve says in Genesis 3.13, the serpent deceived me. I was deceived. Sin is deceitful. Um, And he goes on. Owen says, even the first sin began in deceit. And until the mind was deceived, the soul was safe. This is important for us to remember. Sin, temptation, Satan, the world, the flesh, the devil, they fight for our minds. They seek to confuse our thinking, right? If it can deceive us into thinking something is good, that's how we sin. Something deceives us into thinking that something bad is good. And nothing has changed. Owen continues, he points out 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Notice the link he makes here. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away 
will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's saying the same thing. Just as Satan deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden, very much so today, Satan is still deceiving. That is how sin works. The deceiver continues to deceive. Uh, Revelation 12.9 even says that Satan is called the deceiver of the world. Right? He is the one who deceives the whole world. He goes for our minds. Um, this is how uh, deceit works. Long quote here. It consists in presenting unto the soul or the mind things otherwise than they are. It's a lie. Sin is a deception. Either in their nature, what it actually is, uh, its causes, where it comes from, its effects, what it's going to uh, lead to, or present respect under the soul. It's actually not that bad. This is the general nature of deceit, and it prevails in many ways. It hides what ought to be seen and considered, conceals circumstances and consequences, presents what is not, or things as they are not. It's very powerful to remember that sin is a lie. It is deceitful in its very nature, and it conceals, hides, presents things not as they are. We are being deceived when we sin in any type of sin. Um, I was kind of thinking of the, the illustration of James 1 talks about how, you know, uh, sin is like a baited hook, you know, to like a fish. You know, you like put a worm on the hook. The fish is like, that looks really good. That looks yummy. But that's deception, right? I love to fish. I am deceiving those fish. It is not good for them. It will rip their mouth out or they will die, okay? Um, or if I'm nice, I'll release them so I can catch them again. I can deceive them again, right? That's how it works, okay? I mean, you think of, you know, like a bear trap, you know, with a nice juicy steak or whatever, you know, a deer or whatever in there. The bear comes along and is like, that looks really good, but this is actually going to break my leg and I might die, okay? It's a deception. It is a lie or a mouse trap. That cheese looks really good. It's going to snap my neck, okay? Like, you see the link between the two. That's what sin is. It, we are deceived into thinking that it is good. This is the nature of deceit. This is a quote. It is a representation of a matter, excuse me, under disguise, hiding that which is undesirable. Your neck being snapped if you're a mouse, right? That is undesirable. Proposing that which indeed is not in it, that the mind may make a false judgment of it. So what is our responsibility in fighting against indwelling sin? How do we not be deceived? Two considerations, two things. Constantly, we need to consider ourselves. We need to consider ourselves in relation to sin and its vileness. Don't be deceived by it. Recognize, see through the lie. And number two, consider God, his grace and his goodness. Um, and those are the things that sin labors to draw our minds off of. And then at this point, this is, like I said, where he kind of has this real pastoral heart. Um, a really good quote dealing with, because I think, I think he's realizing, look, I've said a lot. I've written The Mortification of Sin years ago. I wrote Temptation. Now I'm talking about indwelling sin. You're, I mean, there comes a point where if you've just, you know, you're reading 400 pages about sin, where you can get depressed, <laughs> where you just need to think about the glory of Christ. Um, and I think he goes to that person that believer who's struggling with sin, which is all of us, okay? And he kind of hones in here. Um, this excellent quote, one of, probably one of my favorites, top five, maybe, I don't know. He says so many good things. I say that all the time. It says this, To be able to keep the heart always in a deep, humbling sense of sin, in abhorrence of it, and self-abasement for it, 
is a great effect of gospel wisdom and grace. Look, he's saying if you have a humbling sense of sin, if you have a hatred of it, and you have a righteous disgust of yourself over sin, that's good. That's actually an effect of gospel wisdom and grace, okay? This is the trial and touchstone of gospel light. If it keeps the heart sensible of sin, humble, lowly, and broken on that account, if it teaches us to water a free pardon with tears, to detest forgiven sin, to still have a hatred for sin, even though you know that you've been forgiven of it. I love this next part. To watch diligently for the ruin of that which yet we are assured will never ruin us. Isn't that powerful? Like we know in Christ, we will never be ruined, but we still watch diligently of that ruin or for the ruin of that, which we are yet assured shall never ruin us. I don't know. I just stuck out to me. All this, if all this is happening in a believer, that's divine. That's from above. That's of the spirit of grace. I found that really powerful and and really encouraging. There is so much more that could be said um, on indwelling sin. Like I said, that was just a brief survey of it. We're already at 945. I can probably talk about this next week. In fact, I will. Um, Because I think that's a a good place to leave. But I wanted to talk about, in summary on this, the relationship between justification and sanctification and how the Puritans can can help with that. Um, Especially when you're talking so much about sin and your own condition, you're talking about sanctification so much, you can start to be concerned about your justification, okay? So I wanted to spend time on that. You guys see in the notes there the Reformed model of sanctification, I think, the pilgrim Christian and I'm really drawing that from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I'm reading right now um, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is Bunyan's autobiography uh, of his spiritual life that he wrote to his congregation while he was in prison. Because a number of people have said, you will understand Pilgrim's Progress a lot more if you read that. And I was like, okay, so I'll read it. It makes way more sense. Like Bunyan really, really struggled I don't know exactly the years, maybe his whole, I know he struggled pretty much his whole life, but especially in his early life, with assurance of salvation. Huge. Like, just constantly. And it makes more sense, too. You brought up the reprobate in the cage. Like, he just for years and years and years, by faith, could not conquer. Um, I think it's Hebrews 11 or 12, where it talks about how Esau, when he sought the blessing, even though he sought it with tears, did not find a chance for repentance. Um, I actually think he's misinterpreting that verse, but that's another conversation. I don't think Esau was seeking repentance unto salvation. I think he was seeking repentance unto the blessing of the inheritance that he revoked. I don't actually think that's what he's talking about. But um, like he just over and over in his autobiography is like, you know, I received much comfort from this verse. And then a week later, Hebrews 12, I can't remember the verse off the top of my head, you know, Esau, who saw it with tears, and he's just, Pfft. and so you see in his life, the pilgrim's progress, this struggling with sin. If you guys have ever read Pilgrim's Progress, like, it's not a smooth journey. Like, he is struggling all the time, but then if you read part two, so part one is about Christian, if you guys have never read it, part two is about Christiana, Christian's wife, who eventually gets saved. Part one, he leaves his wife and kids behind, which is sad, but they get saved, part two. Um, But their journey is way different than Christians. They have uh, a knight called Great Heart. Again, it's an allegory. 
And they just like all the trials that Christian went through, they don't face at all. I mean, they face them, but they just conquer them. Like they just kill every dragon, demon. You know, it's just like, it's pretty awesome, actually, because he's just like, wow, Greatheart is a cool guy. Um, But I think this is, I think Pilgrim's Progress is valuable because I think it's what's biblical. Okay. I think this is what the Christian life of sanctification is like. It is a conflict. It is like a soldier that we're going to be wounded. Some are going to be wounded more. Some are not going to be. Just circumstances, bodily constitution, whatever it is. Um, And so I want to spend some time on that. We're out of time, so that works great. Kenyon, your notes were for nothing, but we'll look at it next week. Thank you for for jumping in. Any any questions on that before I end? Dennis, yeah. 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 And being broken on it. Yeah. But I think we have to understand that it can get that can get distorted. And just as an example, um, and uh, this is way in the past, but there were people in the past that their uh, great emphasis on mortifying sin led them to do odd things. Oh right, right. Like. You couldn't put any other Bible on top, any other book on top of the Bible, right? You know, and an, an extreme abhorrence of the use of alcohol, right? Right. Um, you can drift into legalism. Yeah, and it's right. Yeah. Legalism, you can drift yeah. Into. Well, and that's why we want to look at justification and sanctification because the gospel. You know, we we think we need to maintain a perfect balance between legalism and antinomianism, which those are just fancy words for legalism. I do these things to merit salvation, legalism, or antinomianism, which is a fancy word for anti-law. Because I've been justified, it doesn't matter how I live. And we think those are both bad. We need to maintain a perfect balance. No, those are both heretical, and the gospel is not a perfect balance. The gospel is completely different. Um, it's, not, it's actually a third way. Tim Keller talks about that. It's actually really helpful for me. It's not a balance between the two. It's something else. The gospel is completely different. Um, And yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I want to talk about this too is because with the influencers thing, just reading some of their stuff, it's real rooted in higher life Keswick theology where you can get to another level of Christian standing. You can get to another place of Christian experience. Um, You know, ultimately Wesleyan theology, Keswick theology, you can get to another place where you actually never sin. And that is unbiblical. That is contrary to what the Bible teaches. And so that's why I wanted to talk about that. Coming out of talking about sin, temptation, I think that'll be helpful um, in kind of summarizing what the Puritans do there. Okay, so two book giveaways. Uh, I've got temptation, which by the way, it's just as good as the mortification of sin. They're all good, okay? They're all really, really good. Temptation, who wants this one of temptation? Peggy, your parting gift. Oh, You'll have to text me how, how, if it helps. Okay, and then indwelling sin. And believers. Anyone? Indwelling sin? Paxson. First one up. Alex, you already got a book, right? Oh, okay, okay. So you can say. Okay, no, no. Paxson will read it. All right. You guys are dismissed. Thank you guys for bearing with me.